Good morning. I'm your host, Claudia Shamba, welcoming you to the January 10, 2017 edition of Ask a Leader. Welcome back, anteaters, students, administrators, educators, and staff. How refreshed are you? It's a privilege to share these airwaves with you. I'm proclaiming right now, let's do this year with purpose, all right? Today, UCI criminologist Charis Kubrin and Ph.D. candidate Adam Dunbar will present their definitive findings about rap music on trial. They'll take us to the intersection of entertainment, social justice, and violence, or the shorthand, art, race, and the law. Then UCI political science professor Davin Phoenix will return to look at where identity politics has taken us at the moment in this place. We'll be right back after a very short station break. Welcome back to the show. My first guests are Charis Kubrin and Adam Dunbar. Charis Kubrin is an American criminologist and professor at UCI's School of Social Ecology. Her research focuses on race, ethnicity, and violence, rap music and media, culture and crime, immigration and crime, and crime trends. She completed her BA at Smith College and both her master's and PhD at the University of Washington. Prior to her appointment at UCI, Charis Kubrin taught at George Washington University. Among the books she's published are Introduction to Criminal Justice, A Sociological Perspective, Punishing Immigrants, Policy, Politics, and Justice, Crime and Society, and Privileged Places, Race, Residence, and the Structure of Opportunity. Her many media appearances include NPR, her TED Talk, and the op-ed pieces in the New York Times and Los Angeles Times. She appears in many a courtroom as an expert witness in rap music based on her attraction to the genre since she was a mere 12. She consults with defense attorneys about putting music into context for juries. Our coverage mainly springs from the title of the article's Threatening Nature of Rap Music, which Charis and Adam have co-written, and Charis's earlier Gangsters, Thugs, and Hustlers, Identity and the Code of the Street Rap in Music, which in 2010 was among UC's 25 most frequently downloaded articles. Joining her is PhD candidate Adam Dunbar, a product of San Dimas here in Southern California, raised by parents who taught in low-income neighborhoods where English was commonly a second language. His family hosted nine foreign exchange students from six countries. These experiences forged his interest in understanding race and culture. He completed his undergraduate degree at Stanford University and is now completing his Ph.D. in the Department of Criminology, Law, and Society at UC Irvine. 
He researches how legal fact-finders evaluate evidence and the implications for racial justice. His dissertation considers the cognitive bases, biases, I'm sorry, associated with, what's the same thing, biases and the bases, with, associated with using rap lyrics as evidence in criminal trials. He's published his work in psychology, public policy, and law, earning with it the American Society of Criminology's Division of Experimental Criminology Student Paper Award. Congratulations. Adams received a, a UC Irvine Public Impact Fellowship for his research and a UC Irvine Pedagogical Fellowship for Excellence in Teaching. Both Adam and Charis joined me in studio today. Welcome to Ask a Leader, Charis Kubrin and Adam Dunbar. Thanks, Hi. Claudia. Well, as it's the classic, can't avoid it. How did you start this definitive work that you did in rap music? I'll, well, maybe I'll start off on that one since uh, my interest predates Adams by a little bit. A few. <laughs> a few. <laughs> so back in the early 2000s, I did content analyses of rap music lyrics, uh, looking at a number of themes in the music, everything from violence to misogyny to nihilism, published a bunch of papers in that area and moved on. And then in 2011, out of the blue, I got contacted by a, an attorney who had a client who was an aspiring Seriously, rapper. How out of the blue? How did they? How out hard of the was blue for them to find you? Um, well, they had actually f located my paper, Gangsters, Thugs, and Hustlers, okay. the one that you mentioned before, on the web, and called me to ask if I'd be willing to serve as an expert witness in a criminal case. And, and I that had, was a shingle you'd not thought of hanging before. Ne well, never, never. Okay. I didn't. I pretty had no idea what being an expert witness was about and to be considered a rap expert you know I was a little nervous about this but I listened to what the attorney had to say ended up doing research on behalf of the case and testified in the case and this was a case where rap lyrics were being used against an aspiring rapper in this particular case a college student um, and I got very involved in this case and fast forward a few years later there's been dozens, literally hundreds actually, of cases where rappers are having their lyrics used against them in criminal cases. So Adam, how did you get started? I mean, so was it at Stanford days or before? Uh, actually, I mean, we've talked about your background, but just absolutely honing in on this as an academic pursuit. So when I started graduate school, I was really interested in two topics, really kind of race and justice, how we understand race and culture, um, and then also kind of psychology and law and how people uh, evaluate evidence and, and understand threats. And a few years ago, maybe three or four years ago, I went to this talk and it was uh, a professor from the uh, humanities. Here. Uh, yeah, at UCI. you've been a graduate uh, student. Okay. Yeah, a dean at the law school and Professor Kubrin. And they're talking about this practice of using rap lyrics as evidence. And what I found so fascinating is that really you could come at this, this problem from so many different perspectives, from this kind of uh, cultural perspective, from the psychological perspective, from this legal perspective. And so from that, uh, I started talking with Professor Kubrin about some kind of experiments that we could run because that was kind of more the methodology that I, uh, that I use and I'm used to. Mm -hmm. um, and from that, uh, generated this much larger project, a set of studies. Wow, what an amazing fit. You two oh, it was great. Yeah. It's not like Adam said, I'm coming to study with you. It's you, and, and it's, it's to our law school dean's credit. He's putting out these forms, the, the, the overlapping with a lot of this and with the when we're going to have Davin Phoenix on later, that with the February of last year's conference on f the freedom of speech, the first, the, the first Amendment and what we cannot say, it, all these things really bring together such important themes that we're engaging in. And that, so that's remarkable, though, that you, you found, Charis, though. That's great. 
So um, let's, it's the lyrics. It's not about the music. It's all in the lyrics. And you talk about that in your publications. Let's talk about for the, all the uninitiative of which I include myself, the street code of rap, the const, the, it's the context. It's so important where the rap songs spring from. It's this identity and the, the upheaval of what's not right in society. Tell us, tell us a bit about this code. You want to talk a little about the history of where the music comes from, Adam? Yeah. So Place us in the, sh- the crossfire. Yeah, so. definitely. That, so this is a, a genre of music that really came out of kind of frustration with an oppressive political structure and concerns about uh, you know, a lack of economic resources. And so this music was really pushed, and, and even and police violence, police brutality. And so this music was really pushing back against against all of that. And so when we hear about violence in the, in the, in the music or some of the, the themes that we consistently hear about, um, they're really a response to, to that frustration. Um, and so you see that in a, in a lot of the different uh, songs that are out there. Yeah, if you go back to the origins of hip-hop more generally, you'll right. see that there's lots of different subgenres of rap music, but the one that's most commercially successful, that's been kind of noted the most, is not the Afrocentric politically, you know, socially conscious music, but more the gangster rap. And if you look at the lyrics of gangster rap, a lot of it seems overly violent, overly misogynistic, but there's a context there, there's a history there, and there's a reason for that, and Adam alluded to some of that. Well, and it sounds like it's... There's an, a power imbalance in a hopeless life in the ghetto in, or in a marginal community. And that, so that we, we talk about the exaggeration in the lyrics, and that exaggeration is a, a, it's a, a psychological means for sort of trying to address the imbalance of power? Yeah, I think that's a, a good explanation. I mean, this music is a way for people who have his lack of resources or a lack of agency to kind of assert that agency and in a very different way and in a way that I think at times people um, are not used to or don't understand maybe the, the kind of the tropes or the, the process or the, the mechanism behind this, this genre. But yeah, I think it's it's a great or it's a way that people can kind of assert that agency in the music. It's and I, I would agree completely with Adam um, that the, this is a means by which to assert agency. On the other hand, one of the reasons why these tropes are so successful is because they're what bring the money in. And right. this is this is what is commercially successful in rap music for the most part. And so would-be artists are pushed toward the subgenre of gangster rap precisely because it is the most profitable. And in that process, rappers are encouraged to be over the top in terms of their persona, the braggadocio, the fantastical, the fictional, all of that is encouraged as a way to sort of be the best at that. It creates capital. It creates capital, absolutely. Just like Hollywood blockbuster movies where there's lots of explosions and a lot of people dying, unfortunately creates capital, right? The more violent often the Hollywood movie, the more uh, uh, people want to go see it. Okay, so let's enter now into this collision between the context that you're laying out and the ones beyond. And you talk very carefully, Charles, about this hardwiring of stereotyping. Well, both, both of you talking about how this hardwiring of stereotyping works and how people use the uh, sort of in that the void of what you call this uh, ambiguous information where that is so dangerous in a 
criminological setting. Claudia, before we address yes. the stereotyping, and that's really Adam's expertise, okay. and I'm going to turn that over to him. Okay, I just want to give one tiny bit of background here, because oh, if you look at the history of hip-hop, one of the things that you see is that there's always been this sort of policing of hip-hop and rap music. Oh, and yes, it's, of course. it's just changed in form and function over the years. So if you look back in the late 80s, what you see is efforts by the police to stop the distribution of the music, the FBI getting involved to try and shut down shows, telling rappers that their lyrics are lewd and, and problematic, right? There, there has always been this sort of policing and social control of African-American expression, I would say, that dates well back before hip-hop. What we're seeing now is less of that direct kind of policing and more of a shift where lyrics are being perceived as threatening, dangerous, literal, and autobiographical. And like that an raised, tape left behind. Yeah. And yeah. that raises the question of why these stereotypes of rap music are sticking. And I think maybe I'll turn it over okay, to Adam yes. now to address that. Yeah. Please. To give a kind of different backstory, just an, an explanation of what stereotypes are. It's, it's these uh, traits or behaviors that we associate with, with specific groups. And so, for example, we uh, there's been a lot of research that shown that has shown that young black men are often associated with aggressiveness and criminality that it's more easily it's, it's easier to associate young black men with those traits than it is we'll say young white men or, or different groups it sticks like lint it, yeah it really sticks yeah and in the context of, of rap music we started this talking about the content of the music but it's also kind of the assumptions that people have about the genre more broadly right the the traits that we associate with that genre and the type of people we associate with the genre, the, the assumptions we have about those type of people. Um, and so what we're really looking at in some of the more recent experiments we've run is is how stereotypes about the genre can influence these uh, evaluations of, of how threatening the lyrics are, how uh, autobiographical the lyrics are. Right? Just by changing, I mean, we'll say the genre label, um, how that changes the evaluations of those lyrics. And this is really important because what's happening in these cases is prosecutors are denying rap as art. Now, you may not like rap. You may find it horrible. But to deny its status as art is very problematic. It is a form of fiction and as such should be treated that way in the courts. What prosecutors are saying is, no, rap is not art. Rap is not fiction. It is actually rappers confessing to their crimes. Right, that's a big leap. Right, that's a big leap. So they're creating this sort of autobiographical, literal narrative around the lyrics. And while that may be true in a very small number of cases, we cannot make those assumptions. And so the question is, how is this argument about the literality and the autobiographical nature of rap lyrics making its, how is that being perceived by jurors? And that's where Adam's research really speaks to how jurors are drawing on these stereotypes mainly about young minority men from inner city communities to evaluate the lyrics and the genre more broadly. And that ambiguity, let's say there are jur jurors who have not been raised in that setting and all the assumptions that they attach to the that individual on trial and hearing those lyrics. It's hugely yeah. a so problem. Stereotypes are often used when you have this ambiguous information, when you're processing a ton of information, so you can imagine a juror sitting uh, at trial listening to, you know, 300 f different facts, um, all these different pieces of evidence, and then have these lyrics that ah, they really don't yes. know how to make sense of. And so these stereotypes are used, yeah, these stereotypes are used to, or can be used um, oh, to evaluate the meaning or infer the meaning of the lyrics. Um, and, you know, you, you mentioned 
that it's this leap to get from uh, the lyrics to this kind of idea that it's a confession. Um, and I think that's a, it's a leap that is possibly easier for people to make because of, of these stereotypes about rap music that you don't necessarily see with other genres, other forms of entertainment or, or art. Yeah, Adam's point, there has no other form of artistic expression, music or otherwise, that is treated this way by the criminal courts. We've identified over a hundred cases where rap lyrics are being introduced as evidence. You don't find that for rock or country, country where they're heavy metal, those guns and they're <laughs> yeah, country chopping, the least slicing, of it. and it's but it's it's not the same thing. There's and been some cases with heavy metal, but that's more the incitement argument that heavy metal incites listeners to go do X Y Z. But the actual use of defendant-authored lyrics I being introduced this. in court against the defendant, really, it's rap. For those of you who've just tuned in, you're listening to Ask a Leader on KUCI 88.9 FM. And my guests are UCI professor of criminology, Charis Kubrin, and UCI PhD candidate Adam Dunbar with their definitive findings about rap music on trial. So that's really interesting. I can see now where the, the juror is very vigilant of all this data coming in. And so in comes, this is sort of considered a, a piece of nonfiction, but it's fiction. That's the problem. Yeah. Yeah. So, and that's the, so jurors, I think, possibly, and especially based on the findings from our, our, our experiment, that they don't know how to understand it. And so they, they understand it as literal, which, if you're understanding this, uh, these lyrics as literal, then it's p potentially a confession, which is an incredibly powerful form of evidence, um, which again, could potentially then sway the outcome right. of the case. What prosecutors do uh, is they basically present the lyrics in the case, the aspiring rapper's lyrics. They often read them rather than rap or recite them in musical form. And then they make the claim that, look, if this person could write something like this, they can't say this, but this is the intonation that goes right, to right. the jurors. If, if someone could write this, they could certainly do it. And they can say that, and that's admissible. Well, no, no, no. They cannot technically they use this They can't say that latter part after the conjunction. No, they're not. You're technically not allowed to so use how far character do they go? evidence. But they'll say that this, basically, this individual is confessing to a crime in the lyrics, or these lyrics show the motive intent or an individual's identity with respect to the alleged crime. And the crazy thing is that if you look at the lyrics in these cases, they're generically touting violence, but there's often absolutely no correspondence between the lyrics and the facts of the case. Wow. But the prosecutor, you know, so I mean, a, a very common refrain, for example, in rap music is I'm a pop a, pop a cap in his, I don't know what I'm allowed to say. Well, just, you got to steer away from those seven words. And so okay. you can say, well, yeah. like, use the medical d dictionary or something. Or Okay. Much. So anyway, it's about like, a, it's a common Go refrain ahead. about shooting somebody. Okay. Yeah. And if I had a dollar for every time a rapper said that line, I'd be, I'd be a millionaire. Yeah, right. You wouldn't be here anymore. Right. And show. so, and what you can, but what prosecutors can do is if you've never listened to rap music and you don't know that, and you hear lines like this, you wow. think, oh my goodness, this person is, is a bad person. This is, speaks to their character. And so you start drawing on these assumptions and stereotypes to make these inferences, not only about the lyrics, but about the person who wrote them. And that is very damaging. But let's, what is the crime that they're, you said that the lyrics have nothing to do with the crime. The crime is what exactly? So that's a great question. There's two general uses in these cases. So in one case, a crime could be anything, a shooting, uh, a robbery, and then lyrics are brought in 
And sometimes the lyrics are five, ten years old, but they're brought in oh, to right? sort of show motive, wow. intent, or identity. Okay. The second type of, of case, and I've testified in both these types of cases, the second type of case is where the lyrics themselves are viewed as so problematic and threatening that the individual is charged with communicating a terrorist threat simply because of the nature of the lyrics. Okay. First of all, when the it's it's bringing rap into the trial, that genre is already charged with a lot of associations that make it even more problematic because as you said, no other genre it has attached with it all of these transgressions. So that's that's the problem beginning. And then we're talking uh, there's different flavors. So there's there it's satirical, it's artistic, it's offensive and and that in in rap and but heavy metal is self-destructive and it's not considered as as threatening. Yeah, so there there are different stereotypes about all these genres that exist. And so country uh, has certain stereotypes or uh, assumptions attached to that heavy metal or it's you think back to the 90s and probably even today that there was assumptions about the, the type of people who would listen to that genre and right, maybe they would partake in more risky behaviors, right? That they consume more alcohol, things like that. But with rap music, we find kind of unique stereotypes about, about criminality, right? The, the people who listen to rap music, the people who write rap music are more likely to be associated with being involved in crime, being uh, more aggressive, having uh, lower intelligence. Things like that. Yeah, the, one of our studies that Adam is doing for part of his dissertation looks at how people evaluate the artist of lyrics. And maybe, Adam, you could tell a little oh, bit yes, about this do. study yeah. in terms yeah. of the difference. That's so helpful. Yeah. yeah, definitely. So this new experiment is basically what happens is a, a participant will read a set of lyrics, um, and then we'll learn that those lyrics are either from a, a country song, from a heavy metal song, from a rap song, and then make a number of, of inferences about the person that wrote those lyrics. So things like uh, how sociable the person is, how likable the person is, how aggressive, um, intelligent. We ask them this in the, in the actual experiment. We in, say, after reading these lyrics, answer a few questions about the artist. Right, okay. How, how likable do you think this person is, right? right. Yeah, so they, they respond across all of these different items. Um, and what the, the data reveals is that people change the inferences they make about the songwriter based on the genre label kind of ascribed to the lyrics. So if somebody finds out that the person or that the songwriter um, is writing violent, we'll say heavy metal or rap lyrics, um, they're more likely to think that the person has bad character, has lower intelligence. Um, but what's interesting is only when the rap label is applied, do people make inferences or assumptions about the criminal propensity of the songwriter. So if somebody finds out that the lyrics are our rap song, they're more likely to think that the person uh, is, is involved in crime, um, has a, a criminal history, things like that. So where was the example in the, your article that we were talking about? That, that I'm not sure how it's presented, but there was the idea that there's a black Confederate soldier shoving versus a white Confederate soldier shoving. So the, the black shove looks a lot harder than the, the white shove. And so there's the, that whole sort of template that pulls up that's, that race charges there. Yeah, this is not our study. This is a famous historical study, yeah. Adam. Okay, wanna, yeah, so, so this and was you could tack on to that when you were doing this work. But so what right. does that tell us? You know, I think, so th that was a study done in the 1970s. And just looking at what this study gets at is how race is a cue that's used to evaluate again ambiguous information and so fills in the whole template yeah if a person sees 
this shove committed by somebody. Right, we have to then evaluate, is that shove, was it playful? Was it aggressive? Right? Is that, is that shove actually violent? And when we're not actually certain about what's going on, we use race as a cue to kind of fill in, uh, fill in the gaps. And so uh, in that study, what the researcher found was that when the shove was committed by a, uh, a black person, it was seen as more violent, aggressive. Well, if the shove was committed by a white person, it was seen as more playful or adding dramatic effect. Um, and so that really kind of, those t t studies like those really set the foundation for the research that we do because it's looking at how mm -hmm. these stereotypes about rap music um, are used to kind of fill in the, some of the holes, or the gaps about uh, this ambiguous, the ambiguous meaning of the lyrics. And let me add one thing. The yes. reason why an experimental approach is so important here, right, in the case of the shove experiment, the shove is identical between the scenarios, right? right. They, they make it identical. So the only difference is the race of the person doing the shove and the race of the person receiving the shove. In our experiments, we use the same standard set of violent lyrics, but we randomly tell some people they're rap, some or people country, country right? And then we evaluate, we look at how they evaluate the lyrics. So in theory, the evaluation should be the same regardless of what genre is ascribed to the lyrics, right? If they're right. violent, they're violent. But what we're finding is across the board, Rap always fares worse. Rap always fares worse whether we're talking how threatening the lyrics are, how autobiographical or literal they are, whether we're talking about the artist himself in terms of his IQ, his intelligence, likability, criminal propensity. In every single case consistently, the artist is viewed worse when it's a rap label and the lyrics are viewed worse when they're rap label. So in your capacity, Charis, as an expert witness, how are you going to mitigate for this? Right. So I think it's very important that experts of any kind Here's the related to rap music. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> if I have one, I mean, yeah. my, my big policy, and I, I don't know if Adam would agree with this, but would be to keep lyrics out of the court. At the end of the day, I don't believe... It's inadmissible, you're saying. I, I, I think in the vast majority of these cases, they're irrelevant to the facts at hand. And they do more to prejudice the jury than to help the jury figure out the facts of the case. So we would say that the probative value does not outweigh the prejudicial impact of introducing the lyrics. My next piece of ad policy advice would be when the lyrics are admitted in by the judge to make sure to have somebody there to provide context and information to the jurors, the vast majority of whom will know nothing about gangster rap. So that's an effort to move it off of the, the data sheet. Right, and, and the goal is not, yeah, something but else. the goal is really not to convince the jurors he did it, he didn't do it. The goal is to simply provide jurors with context. For me to say to jurors, I know these lyrics sound over the top. I know they sound horrible. Um, but these are the genres, these are the conventions of rap music. Things like hyperbole, metaphor, exaggeration, inverted meaning, the use of certain tropes. It's to educate the jurors so that they can take the lyrics that are being introduced and have context for, for making sense of them. So what if you spent all that time on offering that tutelage in with either through the attorney or you as an expert witness on the stand, but the last word is in like a closing statement and they put the rap lyrics out there. Nobody can say that's inadmissible or can they? Well, that's the problem is even so with testifying, and I'm not the only person yeah. testifying across the country in these cases, that m most defendants are found guilty. 
regardless of the neutralizing. Five years. Right. And a lot of these cases are being taken up in state Supreme Courts and two cases have been taken up in the U.S. Supreme Court. And a few of them have been overturned. Vontae Skinner is one of them precisely for the reasons that we've been talking about today. They're not relevant to the facts of the case. They're prejudicial. Um, Rap music is work of fiction and should not be introduced to begin with. But in the vast majority of cases, they are allowed in convictions stand. So I'm going to beg the question, though. We're talking generally about male artists. Are women figuring in this? Are they having as difficult a time? Yeah, so I haven't come across any case, and I, I don't know. They're not as extreme. Assume. They're not as over the top with their lyrics. I haven't some seen one case pretty... involving a female rapper. Yeah. No case, but their they, but their lyrics are out there though. Yeah, so the lyrics are other, We haven't seen a case like that, but I think it also begs an interesting question about kind of how how gender stereotypes play in this. We're we're talking a lot about uh, stereotypes about the the genre. A threatening um, guy. Yeah, the... exactly, and so it's. We now will need to consider not only kind of is this actually happening, but what is the potential for it to happen? How could how do stereotypes about the genre kind of intersect with uh, stereotypes about gender? And maybe it's the case where stereotypes about gender, where assumptions about uh, kind of women and femininity might override or may, might trump uh, these stereotypes about the genre. So it's it's an interesting kind of new set of questions that will be. Are you going to put that in your work? Maybe there's or it's just a lot just of not, directions. They're not going. At, at risk in the system. So well, really I guess, par- I mean, part of what's driven our research yeah. is lawyers coming and saying, these lyrics are going to be introduced. I think they're going to have a prejudicial impact. There's no research to speak to this one way but or you. another. There's so little research. And so literally Adam's dissertation and the work that he's been doing is a direct response to the needs of the attorneys. And this is what's so great about his research is yeah. that it's it has real world application applicability. This is why he's a public impact fellow. Um, But so at this point, there's been no cases involving women. That's not to say there won't be in the future, but there's other questions that I think are more pertinent, more pressing that we should be addressing. Okay, I'm going to quickly throw in this, mainly I guess it's the last question, that BBC had a a piece about, about a month and a half ago that was Meet the Flockers, by YG, and it was essentially it went. It came out in 2014, but it took a little while. It took a couple years for it to catch on. But in the rap music was a manual for how to to burglarize a Chinese household. I mean, it was pretty specific. And the so we've got already we've got the Chinese on black kind of racial divide that is already fraught. But I just wanted if you could react to why do you think it took so long for it take to get to this case to put that rap on trial? And is that is that an example that is of concern? You know, so I'm not really clear on on the timeline why it took a couple of years to become a, a controversial song. But I will say this is one of the issues that I have struggled the most with with okay. this, this topic. That there's kind of two issues going on right now. There's one the kind of critique of of the art form or the entertainment, right? It what type of quality are those rap lyrics? So we could definitely there's like all music out there like all forms of art we can critique the quality of that music and so this this yg song you're uh referring to uh some people might just think it's not a great song it's not a great quality song but that's a separate issue than understanding this or understanding the lyrics as the feed it has as a as a man as a manual to actually uh commit these crimes right it, it's it's different to understand the lyrics as telling people to go 
do these different acts. So I think it's important to keep those two issues very separate. And so while we can critique the the art form, the quality of the lyrics, um, again, we have to understand that as separate from the lyrics telling people to actually go and commit certain crimes. And mm-hmm. that's, you talk about accountability in uh, where rap artists come from, but this is a this accountability may be something ha- that has some merit. Well, it depends on the facts of the case. Okay. I mean, if I had, the thing is, is that I could pull up 10 movies right off the bat that show people how to make drugs. Yeah. And and there's a number of different series, HBO and different shows that show you all kinds of things. Nobody would ever for a minute predict that HBO is trying to teach its viewers how to make drugs. I mean, that's laughable. Well, I I also quickly remember how there was a a Florida congressman who used to get so into what, how how crack cocaine, how cheap it was, how what a buzz. It, I mean, he kept it's like a promotion. I'm thinking so. This is a different standard everybody has about uh, how high profile they make something. Right. We may not like that there's this song out there that's making these suggestions. I mean, I agree with Adam. That's not my particular kind of music that I would like and support. That doesn't mean necessarily that we need to put people in prison either. So, and I guess my my last comment on yeah. this is that we focus so carefully on rap in this society and the problems with rap. When if you look at the way in which violence is portrayed in the media, it 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 is in every facet of American culture, for better or worse. I mean, it's in it is you know Quentin Tarantino movies, HBO, Breaking Bad, and all of these different shows. It is everywhere. And so to focus solely on rap and the problems with rap, I think, really is a double standard. Amen for that wrap up there. Well, Charles Kubrin and Adam Dunbar, I thank you so much for coming today. This has been so interesting. Thanks for all your time and good luck with getting a hang in that shingle. It's a there could be a. A, a nice return for you and uh, more expert witness work. But thank you for, for bringing this to me. It's educating me a lot about how, how delicate this whole situation is. And I wish you lots of luck in defending art out there. <laughs> well, thank you for yeah. having us. Thank you. Well, we'll be right back with Devin Phoenix, and he's going to be our political scientist taking up identity politics be right back this big body sumo with the dope flows born again one you could call me mr uno i've seen stormy weather and i don't got cash but a clear state of mind will change the forecast yo i got a sudden shy state of mind i live love and learn so i'm steady on the ground and i'm wide awake that was lo-fi the track is royalty rejected thanks for staying tuned my next guest is Davin Phoenix, returning back to the show. We're so glad to have him back on. And we're talking about identity politics today. He is my go-to academic for these topics. And he comes, this is, as I think, his third tr- trip here. I'm so glad to have him here. So we're floundering with this, with present company included here, uh, with us, identity politics. I think the last, the last two, three months have been very informing for uh, on my own individual level. So it's, sure. I, I'm, I'm inviting everybody to really step up. It may it may be painful. It may hurt. But on the other end of it, you are so fulfilled. It's, it, it's, it's such an important measure. Professor Davin Phoenix, his research interests include racial attitudes 
Affect and Behavior, Public Opinion, Political Communication, Urban Politics, and Mobilization of Marginalized Groups. His current work is on minority executives in the U.S., from U.S. mayors to the White House. I think he's probably got even more current research than that. He completed <laughs> his undergraduate work in political science at Christopher Newport University in Virginia, then both his graduate student and the joint degree program for public policy and political science and Ph.D. at the University of Michigan. Today, we'll take up how campuses around the country are addressing identity politics amidst free speech. There's a lot now printing up here. Welcome back to Ask a Leader, Davin Phoenix. Thanks so much. It's a pleasure to be here as always. Oh, good. Well, so according to last Sunday's New York Times editorial by Jody Cantor, in the run-up to the 2008 general election, she's quoting none other than Michelle Obama as saying, and I these are the quotes, I hate diversity workshops. Real change comes from having enough comfort to be really honest and say something very uncomfortable. End of quote. How do you react to that? We, we, she's not been bringing, put, hanging that shingle lately, but I think there are, a great deal is revealed. What do you take from that, Davin Phoenix? From my personal experiences as an academic, there is a lot to unpack in that type of quote. Please. When I think about diversity workshops and the concept of diversity more broadly, I find it to be something of a troubling idea in the way it's often executed. As someone who has been no stranger to diversity forums, workshops, conferences. Are you like the go-to guy? (laughs) Sure. Uh, As (laughs) many times minority professors find themselves being the go-to people. Uh, because there are so far and few minority professors on campus. And so when we are thinking about diversity, what that often gets translated to quite problematically is one or two minorities in a room expected to speak on behalf of the group. And that is not an enviable position. When you think about the comfort it takes to speak openly and honestly, especially across different identities, A great part of that comfort comes from not being the only person in the room representing that group or community. It's very different to be the single representative and not feel compromised, potentially co-opted or vulnerable to not have your views be taken with the uh, legitimacy or the weight that you want them to. And so when we think about diversity, oftentimes we're thinking about it in a very limited or problematic lens. Checklist. Exactly. We're thinking, let's have one of each person in the room and maybe we'll end with Kumbaya. Maybe we'll join hands and sing some songs and have a group hug and uh, racism will be over. But public service announcement that it's the work happens after message taken, message mold over, message ruminated. So it's sort of like it's it's not going to happen right in that. The Kumbaya isn't going to be a step taken then. It's going to be what we're sort of giving more thought to and and reflection on. That's right. And not only giving thought and reflection on, but truly challenging others and being challenged. I think one thing that's often missing from our ideas of diversity, the kumbaya, let's all join hands, is that true diversity is often contentious. It's challenging. It's work because you need to change a status quo. And people are resistant to the type of change that needs to happen to make spaces, particularly uh, political spaces, social spaces, academic spaces, more inviting for groups that have historically been systematically denied access to those spaces. Okay. Did you want to say more about 
you're saying to unpackage more what Michelle Obama's comment was, or that's that pretty much covers that. I don't want to shortchange you with what you take from that, because and we there's a from I think it's from Yale. The, there's a new diversity administrator m- m- coming to USC, Professor Harper. Okay. That's, it's just joining them. So, and I, I, w- I looked all over as Twitter account and all kinds of places, sort of in preparation. Is, is sort of what what is he bringing it? How how right. rigorously has he been working on this? He's proving himself in so many different kinds of forms. And I do believe I've even heard him on NPR before. But that, I mean, this guy's really packing a wallop, and it's mm-hmm. sort of it's not just what he's bringing, but USC's intent to really activate a dialogue and. Work, tone a lot of muscles around in administration in the in the campus policy, the, camp, the body of campus. That's right, and that speaks to really quickly the yeah. uh, importance of diversity not simply being uh, a social or a cultural idea, but being a structural, institutional, legal, and political idea. Uh, meeting the ideals of diversity, which is to kind of increase the balance of a community and make people feel welcome and involved and affirmed, uh, takes more than interaction. It takes policy change. It takes a reconsideration of the kinds of things that we're valuing, the kinds of students we're looking for, the kinds of faculty we're looking for, the kind of research we're valuing at our institution. And those types of decisions can't simply come from from people meeting in a room. Those kinds of decisions have to be top-down decisions. And so if diversity isn't something that's kind of being embedded in the organizational core of a leadership structure, whether we're thinking about college administration or political administrations, then we're not going to see the ideals of diversity achieved in any substantive manner. So we hop then from there into right on the ground, the the so-called safe spaces on campus that I'm, are we... In, at risk of infantilizing our students with the safe places. What what are we intending with this? What are the risks? What lost opportunities if we're going to silo, perhaps, in terms of living arrangements, in terms of classes, in terms of student body organizations? And what are the consequences? And we both were looking at Frank Ferruti's L.A. Times opinion piece a couple of days ago. So what what are we missing here when we're doing that, when we make those choices? Sure. So I think, again, we need to scrutinize the narrative that's being persistently put forth about the safe spaces on campus, because as you note, there's been a great deal of attention given to this idea, not just in recent months, but even I'd say in recent years, um, about this idea of identity politics manifesting as students, particularly students from uh, various minority background groups, uh, self-segregating this idea that this same set of students isn't willing to engage other ideas and counter challenging narratives or viewpoints or perspectives and that they're being insulated and that college is now uh, infantilizing. Again, I think there's a lot to unpack in that narrative. When we think about the origins of safe spaces and even the origins of some of these terms that are bandied about and often pilloried, such as trigger warnings, right? Let me start there, actually. Yeah, let's do that. Good. Because I think we can kind of broaden that out. When we think about uh, trigger warnings, right, the original purpose of a trigger warning is to uh, give a heads up to someone who themselves has experienced some form of trauma that they're about to experience or engage content 
that might be reminiscent of that trauma, right? Whether right. it's the language or the images, right? And so when we're talking about trigger warnings, right, we're talking about messages uh, given to people that aren't weak, but people that have endured some type of traumatic experience, right? right? Whether that's uh, a veteran in imagery of war or a person that's uh, survived some type of sexual misconduct or sexual assault, Right. We're talking about people that are actually quite strong. And so uh, the trigger warning isn't even um, allowing them to avoid the content. Right. It's giving them a heads up. You're about to engage head on content that could be very evocative of this trauma you've survived. Right. So even inherent in the true idea of trigger warning is a very um, important sense of strength. Right. We're talking about survivors. And so I think the idea of using the concept of a trigger warning and reconceptualizing it as something that shows how we're weakening students, I think is very problematic and it's okay. very inaccurate. Right. Wow. And so when we think about those kinds of conversations, right, I'm sure there might be many people uh, even listening to these kinds of conversations that could very much disagree with what I say. And I imagine many of those people have an impulse to seek out uh, colleagues or friends or coworkers of theirs that might share their views, right? right? And say, well, that. you know, I, I heard that professor on the radio sick. say some nonsense. That's nonsense, right? What are those people doing? They're seeking out some validation, some legitimization of their viewpoint right. when they're encountering a challenging view. Well, isn't that all that safe spaces are? It's groups of people that want to have an area, a community where they can feel their views are being validated and legitimized. Right. So if we're talking about Good safe point. spaces, every last one of us uh, in college we settings, go. in work, in our social media feeds, in our neighborhoods, in our religious places, we create social uh, safe spaces. Uh, many of us determine our friends and even the family that we speak with more than twice a year based on the degree to which they share our underlying views and principles. So this idea of safe spaces being some problematic uh, element for people of color on campus Again, it's quite inaccurate, right? And it's quite loaded politically to think of safe spaces as this construction of marginalized students on campus. We also, when we think about the history of many of these colleges where these issues are raging, right? These are colleges where embedded in their institutional history, right, is the segregation of students, either segregation of students or the exclusion of students from different racial groups from the campus. Right. right. And that's not something that simply is an artifact of a distant past. Right. Because that has manifestations for many aspects of college life from the types of academic programs that are vibrant on campuses to the uh, great lack of racial diversity in organizations from the Greek organizations to the secret societies to even rank and file civic and social groups and clubs. Right. And All of those I, groups. There's another layer, Devin, if you don't mind my sure. uh, uh, talking over this, is that I also in researching this, I'm looking at there's all these proxies being fought from organizations stand with us. Is there a proxy that are using the students as a proxy for their own sort of Israeli position? So there's some of not, not all student organizations are created equally because they That's have right. the heft of community organizations that are giving them maybe a higher profile or more support. So it's sort of right. that game isn't Resources. even even. Yeah, that's right. So even when we think about these student organizations, right, there's a big difference between 
the Truly Grassroots Student Organizations Versus. and the AstroTurf Student Organizations, which go. are actually getting their resources, their platform which are uh, from the top, right? Yeah. From actual political advocacy groups. Right. Sure. Yeah. And so all of those are contributing to very clear and concrete uh, racial, ethnic, and sexual dynamics for students. And so I think it's well within, it's more than reasonable for students to seek some refuge. And it's not simply that they seek out these safe spaces purely as a means of escape. We also need to appreciate that these safe spaces also allow these students to engage in necessary exchange of ideas within group about the ways to mobilize the issues to prioritize and as go they back seek out there. advancement exactly yeah. on campus and do the work of okay, meeting uh, ideal diversity norms, right? You can't get diversity without people who make the body diverse advocating and acting and announcing their demands and making those demands known. Oh, if you've just joined us, my guest is Davin Phoenix, UCI political science professor, talking about identity politics here on campuses and beyond, here on KUCI, 88.9 FM and Irvine, streaming on the web and Instagram, Tumblr, and Facebook on our, uh, with all the KUCI.FM handles. Help yourselves, folks. So... We're talking about sort of the insulation versus engagement. So I can see here where the, let's say the informal, we're not talking about safe space like, you know, where you bed down and your your whole wing of your dorm is just like you, but right. the, the safe space, so it's preparing you, armoring you to go back out there and, and be a force to be reckoned with. And that's a very important function to right. advance all of these causes that we're talking about. Um, so I, and I mentioned that the anti-Zion. Oh, well, yeah, let's. Well, we've, we've got a little time left here. Um, I'm, I'd like for you to react to the there's been this proxy war, uh, as or I'd mentioned before, uh, uh, between the Arabs and Israelis and the UC Board of Regents last it was about almost a year ago, last February were uh Last yes, it was last March. They adopted the policy of linking anti-Zionism to anti-Semitism. That that gets square in the middle of identity politics. And then after that, Governor of New York and Andrew Cuomo created a blacklist to boycott any New York business from an institution that promotes the boycott, divestment, and sanction activities, which is all about the Arab-Israeli conflict. So uh, the Board of Regents decided to interject themselves into that debate, um, defining the forms of what is considered anti-Semitic, which in, in Israel, it's a whole different, that you're allowed to do those things, but the, 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 are we not, is the UC Board of Regents infantilizing the, or biasing the debate here on campus with what is allowed and not allowed? Is Andrew Cuomo going to be biasing what is a movement that has legitimate concerns? Well, I think both of those examples speak very clearly to the logical fallacy on which this argument about the infantilizing of college and social spaces is. The idea that uh, ideas and engagement across different uh, perspectives is a politically neutral concept and that it's not influenced by policy, by top-down decisions, is illogical it's a fallacy as those examples demonstrate people in positions of power whether we're thinking about uh, campus administrations or political administrations are in many ways shaping 
the terms of debate and legitimizing viewpoints while also delegitimizing others, right? And so that type of uh, dynamic, which has always been present, right? We oh, yeah. always needed to recognize the uh, role of policy and policymakers in shaping what are and are not accessible and legitimate ideas. Right. Right. That creates even more of a burden on people that don't share those ideas to mobilize and to think through how can we work in politically feasible ways to legitimize these ideas or to counter the narrative that this will be allowed and this will not. Right. So it becomes more imperative than ever that these groups, whether they're student groups or any type of group, not just be devoted to engaging the other side, but really work within house to determine how can we be effective political advocates for this cause that we're seeing um, is not viewed as acceptable in the mainstream. Right. And so we're not talking about, again, kumbaya let's have our ideas be validated and all else we're talking about an actual conflictual clash of ideas a clash of ideologies a clash of policy uh prescriptions so what we're talking about really is the heart of politics and you cannot get at the heart of politics without these spaces to have these ideological exchanges because the playing ground uh, is not equal. There are ideas that are valued by elites and ideas that are devalued by them. Mm -hmm. And so anyone, whether it's by virtue of um, their racial ethnic minority community, just their political views, their gender, sexual identity, if they are on the outside looking in, right, they've got to have not just a space, right? But they've got to have in-house resources to challenge and fight and press for a seat at the table. And so we're not just talking about uh, dialogue. We're really talking about advocacy. We're talking about action. We're talking about um, the different ways in which political ideas uh, manifest through political revolutions. And the idea that colleges are now no longer breeding grounds for that type of critical thought, for that type of mobilization, for that type of uh, contentious activism, I soundly reject that idea. Are you concerned about the upcoming administration having a chilling effect on advancing what we're trying to advance here? Uh, I'm certainly concerned about the potential for a pervasive crackdown on uh, free associations, a crackdown on expressions of political dissent. Uh, so what we've seen, even on some of these college campuses in the last few months, seems to be indicative of politicians, uh, particularly state legislators or legislators uh, attempting to provide possibly rein in uh, academic freedoms, yeah. weaken tenure, uh, provide some types of campaigns to maybe intimidate professors that um, give ideas or even engage in research uh, that the political leaders don't agree with. Uh, these are indeed very real threats to the type of uh, thinking and innovating and change-making that we hope and expect colleges to be at the forefront of. And I think it's going to place an even larger burden on student activist groups and even just student social groups to think critically about 
what role they play in not just dissenting a particular individual, particular administration, right, but dissenting these ideas that would limit their ability to express themselves the way they know themselves to be. Okay, so that's that's a takeaway. We all have we have to be really vigilant about a lot of ground that might be lost. And so I Davin Phoenix, I really thank you for coming on down at this identity politics. It's tough work to consider as thoughtfully as you do. Thanks for coming down to the station for taking some time once again to address this for our benefit. Thank you for having me. Thank you. My guest was UCI political science professor Davin Phoenix talking about identity politics here on campuses. That was my wrap. I'm, uh, next week, I'm bringing in three professors, all from different disciplines, to talk about the drama staged during the Trump transition. I'm calling it the Theater of Disorientation, and I'll include Gary Busby and Peter Ditto. It's the last show before we go straight into uncharted territory. Witness what's taking place this morning with confirmation hearings on Capitol Hill. Talk with you next week. Thank you for listening, everyone. Real estate is all of mine. Went from knucklehead to bright. It's like love when it's beautiful, great. But when it gets ugly, see what you made of, baby. When you wrestle with the butts, if ands and maybes, try to get a slippery grip. What it is is shady in you. We all got a fault or two. We all been through it, and hey, we all got a song to sing. Can't let it ruin you. Go